Philanthropy has been in the headlines recently. Billionaire financier Warren Button, Buffett is encouraging the very wealthy to give away at least half their worth in their lifetime through the Giving Pledge, whose website lists such luminaries as Microsoft's Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and Larry Ellison of Oracle. Just last week, Apple's chief executive, Tim Cook, joined the roster of the very rich who are giving away their wealth. Fortune magazine cited the head of the world's largest technology corporation as saying he planned to donate his estimated $785 million fortune to charity after paying for his 10-year-old nephew's college education. Cook is quoted as saying, I quote, you want to be the pebble in the pond that creates the ripples for change, unquote. One might respond, what a tremendously loving thing to do. Maybe and maybe not. First Corinthians 13.3, if you would turn there with me, please. First Corinthians 13.3 teaches us that one can be tremendously giving and yet not be loving. In 1 Corinthians 13.3 it says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, it says, but have not love. It's interesting that it does not say, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, then I am loving. But it is possible to do those things and not have love. And then it says, I gain nothing. What does it take for an act of giving to actually be an act of love? The answer to that question is found in this verse, and tonight I am focusing on this verse in order to help us better understand, to, re to realize, to magnify God's love for us in saving us. We hear that so often that I really don't think that we have even an inkling of what it means for God to love us in saving us. Paul prays in the book of Ephesians that they might have their eyes opened and they might understand what is the height and depth and breadth and width of God's love for us. So it is my prayer and hope that tonight, as we partake of communion, that we're going to have a fresh and deeper understanding of God's love for us. The first thing that I would note is that for an act to be loving, it has to be without constraint. It cannot be forced or coerced in any way. Notice 1 Corinthians 13.3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body, or NES, and if I give all my possessions 
to feed the poor. And I deliver my body to be born, to be burned. It is a volitional free act. If a poor man comes up to a rich man and holds a gun at his temple and says, give me everything you have, and the rich man gladly empties his pockets and gives over everything he has, he has given it away, but it's not an act of love. It's not an act of generosity. It is coerced. It is forced. It is given reluctantly. For an act to be praiseworthy, it must be done without any kind of constraint. God's saving us is praiseworthy, for it is without any kind of constraint. And we might ask ourselves, what kind of constraint could God be under? Who could hold a gun at God's head and say, save us? Well, obviously, it cannot be that kind of constraint. But let me tell you what sometimes people may think of as a constraint that God would be under, but is not. He was under no outward constraint, and he was under no inward constraint. First, God was under no outward constraint to save us. God was not under any peer pressure, if you will, to save us. Tim Cook, as I mentioned, uh, just said last week that he was going to donate all that he had to charity. Tim Cook's a little late to the party. All these other individuals have been doing this now for a few years. And uh, Warren Buffett has been touting the importance of philanthropy for a period of time. So what motivated Tim Cook to decide to do this now? I don't know. Maybe it was peer pressure. After all, all these billionaires are, are giving so much, maybe he felt like he was obligated to give as well. And Nice and Sapphira are an example of a couple who gave out of a feeling of constraint. They had a sense of peer pressure to do so. In the book of Acts, it says that the whole congregation of those who believed were one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Everyone was selling what they had and giving it to the disciples, and then it was being distributed. Barnabas did such a thing. And Ananias and Sapphira, well, they sold what they had, but they gave half of it away and then kept half for themselves. But they wanted to present it as though they were giving everything, but in actuality they weren't. And Peter said, you didn't have to give anything at all. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And as a result, they fell down dead. But they felt a constraint. God was under no peer pressure. There was no one for God to emulate or impress. Let me say that again. There was no one for God to emulate or impress. Second Chronicles 6.14 says, 
And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like thee, in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart. There is no God like you. What God did was unprecedented in saving us. But more importantly, God was under no inward constraint to save us. No inward constraint to save us. God was not constrained to save us as a result of some need. God had no deficiency that he needed to make up for in order to save us. God did not need to save us in order to supply for him materially. It is not what we bring to God. All that we have, all that we give God, comes from God. Psalm 50, verse 7 says this, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So God reminds the children of Israel, when you give me anything, it's mine. You profit me nothing in what you bring to me. God did not need to save us in order to accomplish his purpose or his will. The psalmist said, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and yet thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The psalmist wonders, why would God do that? Why would God entrust to mankind, that kind of responsibility. For the psalmist says, who are we, O God? God didn't need to do that. The angels could have done it. There was no deed. God did not need to save us because he was in need of fellowship, because he was lonely, and he desired our presence with him to make up for some lack of fellowship or oneness in the Godhead. Not at all. The greatest fellowship that God could enjoy was the fellowship of the triune God. And in saving us, the perfect fellowship of God was not enhanced. It was diminished. For the perfect fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
was broken at the cross when Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The fellowship of the Godhead was broken, not enhanced, by saving us. God was under no moral constraint to save us. Let me say that again. God was under no moral constraint to save us. The fact that God is under no moral obligation to save us is evidenced in the fact that not all are saved. The fact that God is under no moral obligation to even provide a means of salvation. Let me say that again. God was under no moral constraint to even provide a means of salvation. See, there would some that would say, well, God has no moral constraint to actually see that people are saved only to provide salvation. He was under no moral constraint even to provide salvation. Is evidenced in the fact that there is no salvation possible for the fallen angels. The angels that have sinned have no hope. They have no savior. They have no offer of salvation. There is no deliverance whatsoever for any angel that has fallen. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. In 2 Peter, the point is, if God is going to condemn angels, certainly he is going to condemn sinners that fail to repent. My point tonight is that God did not spare a single angel that sinned. He's under no moral constraint to save us. His justice did not require that he save us. His holiness did not require that he save us. There is no attribute of God that required him to save us at all. No obligation, no duty, no constraint, nothing to force him from without or from within to save us. Now, once he chose to save us, then his justice demanded that Christ die on the cross. His holiness demanded that there would be a penalty uh, payment for sin. But before he chose to save us, there is nothing in the character of God that required it. He was free, totally free, not to show his love to us. Number two, for an act to be loving, it has to be selfless. That is, it does not result in personal benefit. 
Therefore, in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, it says, if I give away all that I have. Now, that word for give away literally means to dole out, to parcel out. That's why the NAS says to give all my possessions to feed the poor. That's uh, actually added to the text to try to make sense of what is being said. The idea is, is giving to the needy, and so doling it out. Here, the individual is giving it up with nothing to gain from doing so. He does it simply for the sake of the poor or for the glory of God. God the Father gave up his Son in order to save us. You see, in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, there's an, there is an a, uh, estimation of what was given up. All that I have, my body to be burned, it's the ultimate and complete sacrifice. God the Father gave up his Son in order to save us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his one and only Son, God the Son gave up all rights and privileges and prerogatives of deity. That was my Sunday morning's message. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery or something to be grasped, to be held on to, to be like God, but took upon himself the form of a servant. He relinquished all the prerogatives of being God in order to become a man. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be rich. He gained nothing in saving us. It is hard to find people that will be willing to give, other, to give to others without getting something in return. That's hard to find. Hard to find people that are so loving that they will give to others without getting something in return. That's why charitable organizations hold auctions. Because people are more likely to give if they get something in return. Oh, now, they may spend more than what something is worth, but they still get something in return. Probably something that they want. Something that is of some value to them. That is why charities use fundraisers in which they sell overpriced Hershey bars and other food items. Now it's overpriced, but yet you're still getting something for it. That's why they have raffles, because there's the possibility that you may win a car, you may win a motorcycle, you may win a cash prize. Not guaranteed, but you may get something out of your gift 
if you give, quote unquote, a gift. That's why religious organizations say, if you give a gift of $50, we'll send you a book in the mail. Now that profits the, the uh, organization. They're not even being gracious in doing that because they get a royalty on the book and most often the person that's in charge of the organization wrote the book and so he gets a, a, a price of that fee. But the point is that it's hard to find people that will give without getting something out of it. God gets nothing out of saving us. Only when a gift is given solely to benefit others and to glorify God is it worthy of praise. Notice 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, I take that as in devotion to God. But I'm not love. I gain nothing. The gain here is praise, honor, and glory. The only way in which it is praiseworthy, the only way in which I gain praise is if I do these things in love. If I don't do these things in love, then I haven't gained anything. Then it isn't praiseworthy. The gain is in of itself a motivation. It is a reward. It's a different kind of reward. It's not a material reward. But nonetheless, it is a reward. And thus, it makes sense for a Warren Buffett to emphasize to give away half of what you possess in your lifetime, as opposed to in one's will. For you don't get to see the benefit. You don't hear the praise. You don't get the satisfaction of seeing what takes place in other people's lives. The reward still comes back to benefit, but this time in the form of praise or adoration. But without love, that notoriety and praise will not be given. Certainly, not by God. But even when we give, it is not a perfect love because the individual is always gaining something. Even if it's God's praise. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Which brings me to the fourth point. And you've got to listen to this one really carefully because it may be a bit shocking to you. God's love for us is unique because he gains, key word here, gains, don't forget that word. He gains absolutely nothing in saving us, including praise, honor, and glory. Let me say that to you again. Think about that. God's love for us is unique because he gains absolutely nothing in saving us, including praise, honor, and glory. 
It is hard to explain why God would save us. Why God would show his love to us. And usually there are one of two answers that are given. Either because we are just so magnificent that of course God loves us and wants to save us because we're really important. We're really lovely. We're really great stuff. No. God commended his love toward us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. There's nothing in us that merits his love for us. Bram! That, that fails. So then, usually the answer is, God saves us because it brings him honor and glory. God saved us to glorify his name. Believe it or not, bram, that's not true either. That's half true. Half true. Now you say, wait a minute. Shouldn't we honor and glorify God for praising him? The answer is, yes, of course we should. Won't God receive honor and glory and praise for his saving us? He certainly will. Aren't the angels in heaven praising God? The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world? Of course they are. And won't God receive honor and glory and praise for all eternity for saving us? Yes, he will. And the passage I was in on Sunday said this, Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee bowing, every kneel praising, all of creation, glorifying God. Yes. But he gained nothing. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. It's a verse worthy of asterisking, underlining, marking, and meditating on it for a long time. John 17, 5. This is Jesus in his high priestly prayer just before he's crucified. John 17, 5. And now glorify thou me. Glorify thou me. The Son of God could not increase in glory. The glory that mankind can bestow is not greater than the glory that the heavenly host can bestow. And certainly, 
the glory that man can bestow and the glory that the heavenly host can bestow is not greater than the glory that the Father can bestow. So look at Jesus' prayer. Now glorify thou me, referring to God the Father. The glory that the Son of God is not greater than the glory that the Father receives. Verse 5. Now glorify thou me with thyself. The place of glory that the Son of God occupies after having taken upon himself humanity, dying on the cross, rising again from the dead, ascending to heaven, returning to earth to reign and presiding over a new heaven and new earth is not a more glorious position than he occupied before. The Son of God was not elevated in his position as a result of taking on humanity and doing all these things. Notice verse 5. Here are the key words. And now glorify thou me with thyself, Father. And now look at these words. With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Restore me to my previous glory. Not a greater glory. Simply an equal glory. For there was no greater glory. He was God. And all things were subject to him. He was all glorious. He was worthy of all glory. In saving us, at best, he revealed that more clearly. He showed it to us more demonstrably. But the reality is, he was all glorious. The Son of God did not occupy a higher place. The Son of God did not achieve a greater glory. He was simply restored to his rightful place of glory. God gained nothing in saving us. Saving us was a pure, selfless, sacrificial act. It was an act of true love, pure love, unmitigated love, and incomprehensible love. A love for which there is no explanation. That's why this whole idea of God saved us to bring him glory is thrown out there, because it makes sense to us. Except God is not egotistical. The whole marvel is that God is not self-serving. He gained nothing in saving us. Is God concerned about his glory in saving us? Sure he is. Once having committed to saving us, we are saved to the glory of his grace. 
in committing to save us, he will keep his promises to us for his name's sake. We have greater confidence, but it's not for his glory that he initially saved us. The impetus in the scripture is always, always, always his love for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. That is the impetus, that's the motivation. Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be to praise and uh, his glory. In love, he predestinated us into the adoption of sons. In love. So what should our response be to God's love for us? First, humility. Humility. God's love for us doesn't say anything about us. I actually sat in a sermon on my vacation at Pinebrook and heard from a pulpit a person that had the audacity to say that no one pays more for something than it's worth. Think of how valuable you are to God if God would give his son for you. That's blasphemy. You aren't as valuable as God's son. That's not why he saved you. Because you are so important. No. No. We aren't deserving of God's love. We should never think of ourselves as sacrificing for God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or house or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter says, look at what I gave up in order to serve you. Jesus says, don't you dare talk about what you've given up to serve me. You've received everything in serving me. Don't think in serving God that you've given him anything. He could have perfected service in a thousand and one different ways. You have nothing to give to God. Everything that we give to him, he already owned. Everything that we give to him, he's already provided. Humility. The second is amazement. Praise, adoration, thankfulness for his, his saving us. You see, we, we ought to just, we ought to sit back and be mind-boggled. He didn't have to save us. He didn't need to save us. It cost him a great deal to save us. He gained nothing in saving us. So, 
Why did he save us? There's no explanation. He just loved us. That's all. He loved us. So he saved us. The third response to God's love in saving us is ultimate and complete confidence in our relationship to God. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely also give us all things? If he would give his son for us, will he not give us all things? And then notice the application of that at the end of Romans 8. For I am convinced... That's Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because none of those things matter to God. None of those things are going to dissuade God. Nothing that you can do. For God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no explanation. There's just this amazing reality. But God loved us. And God saved us. Nothing will keep God from loving us. Last response. We who are so finite, we who are so weak, we who are so selfish, we who are so sinful, can't we at least respond to that kind of love. With a little more sacrifice, with a little more humility, with a little greater thankfulness and praise and adoration and the giving of ourselves. Because he is worthy. for his great love. So let us celebrate together God's love in the partaking of communion. I'll ask the brethren to please come forward at this time.